last few weeks, we've been preaching a series called The Church on Mission. And I spoke on the first week and answered the question, what is the church? We looked at the local church. We looked at the universal church. Pastor Austin spoke the second week, and he asked the question, what is the mission of the church? And then just last week, Pastor Jeremy tackled the question, what are the ordinances of the church? So this morning, my focus is going to be the question, what is church membership? What is church membership? Is that even a thing? Is it biblical? Do we find that concept and that phrasing even in the Bible? Let me share with you two quick stories to tell you why I think this is a really important and relevant topic. As many of you know, I I grew up going to church. Uh, From the time I was in fifth grade, maybe even younger, I went to this medium-sized Baptist church in Bayville, New Jersey, maybe around 300 people or so. I went to kids club every week when I was old enough. I went to youth group every Wednesday. Uh, My parents brought me faithfully to Sunday school and the church every single Sunday morning. We went to nearly every event in the church. My parents were active. They were faithful, supportive, involved in leadership at times. I, I was growing up in this church and it was at this church that I came to know Christ. I cut my teeth in ministry at this place. I was baptized at this church. As a teenager, I was allowed to speak in a youth group from time to time. Uh, They helped out with various ministries from time to time, and they even hired me as an intern twice at this church. In other words, this church was like my second home growing up. Well, one weekend, I was at Bible college, and I came home for the weekend, and the church had a membership meeting. And their annual membership meeting came up. And, and I showed up and I was ready to, you know, see what a church meeting was all, what, what, what that was all about, what that was like. I, I'd never been to a church meeting like that before. And I was excited. My first church meeting. Now, in hindsight, why I was excited about an annual membership meeting, I'm not quite sure. But imagine my surprise when I get there on that Sunday morning or whenever it was, Sunday night, I guess it was. And I was told that I couldn't attend because I wasn't a member. I said, what do you mean I'm not a member? I grew up here. I got saved here. I was baptized here. I'm on the payroll. How am I not a member? They said, you didn't take a class. You didn't get voted in. Fast forward a few years. I'm a young buck right out of Bible college, newly married, nice degree under my belt from Philadelphia Biblical University. I started my first full-time ministry position at a little tiny Baptist church in Point Pleasant Beach, New Jersey. Things were going well. Life was good. The teens were responding to my teaching. I'm enjoying finally getting to fulfill my call as a, as a pastor. Everything is going exactly as I thought it should be. And then came my first church meeting. Now I should say this, in this church, the way that they wrote their constitution, all the people who were hired as pastors were automatically members. So as soon as you got hired as a pastor, you were a member. For the first time ever, I was officially a member of a church, and I didn't even have to take a class. Not only that, but my wife was a member too. Pastor's wives got a, got a free pass as well. They kind of came in with you. So our first membership meeting comes up, and I'm kind of excited, right? I've never been to one. What happens at these things? I mean, do we, do we sing? Do we pray? Do we eat? Do we celebrate what God is doing? No, 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 and no. We talk about problems. 
We talk about finances. We talk about frustrations. I, I felt like I was on that Seinfeld episode where they celebrate Festivus. Now it's time for the airing of grievances, right? Like, that's what I felt like at this, at this meeting. In the middle of the meeting, this young guy grabs the microphone. They had a roaming microphone around. And he grabs the microphone and he begins to speak his piece about the church. Not just that church, but the church down the road, the church as a whole, that church in particular, all of these terrible opinions about church, and people are yelling at him, be quiet, sit down, go home. And I leaned over to the senior pastor. I said, who is this guy? And he said, I don't know. <laughs> He'd never seen him before. Apparently this church had this open door policy where whoever wanted to come into these membership meetings could come in. They could hijack a microphone, say whatever they want. They didn't have to be a member. They didn't even have to be a regular attender. We had a woman that was there. She was on our membership rolls at that church. She only came to church twice a year, once every six months. There was something in our church constitution that in order to keep an active voting membership, you had to, you had to be in attendance once every six months. So she would come in twice a year. She would write a $1.01 check and drop that in the offering plate as a record that she attended. And then she would come out to church meetings and stir up trouble. It's the only reason she did it, so she can come to church meetings and vote. Now, through those two experiences, I learned about varying degrees of focus and value on church membership. The experience at that second church made me reconsider my negative taste about how that first church handled membership. What is church membership? Is it biblical? Why is it important that we have something like that? What I want to do is I want to start this morning by camping out in a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 to begin answering that question. If you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 5. If you don't have a Bible, we have some ushers that have Bibles for you. We'd encourage you to have an open Bible in front of you. And if you need one, feel free to take it home. It's our gift to you. We think it's that important that you have and own a copy of God's Word. So 1 Corinthians 5, if you open up and there's a bunch of genealogies in front of you, you probably hit 1 Chronicles 5. You want to go forward a few books in the Bible to the New Testament. 1 Corinthians written by a guy named the Apostle Paul. The church at Corinth was, quite honestly, a really, really rotten place. Maybe you've gone to bad churches before, had a bad church experience before for one reason or the other. This church was probably worse. They had all sorts of divisions in the church. All sorts of church arguments. They were suing one another in the church. They were divorcing each other. They were getting drunk at the Lord's table. I mean, imagine getting drunk at what we just did up here with communion. They were confused about the resurrection of Christ. They were fighting over who had the greatest spiritual gift. This church had problems. Now, one of those problems we read about is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me start reading. And, and I assure you, this has relation to church membership. So, Listen carefully and see if you could pick it up. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, one of the really cool features of this text is that if you put your ear really closely to the pages of Scripture, you can actually hear Paul's astonishment in these words. I mean, it's like when you put a shell to your ear when you're at the ocean, you could hear the ocean, right? Except here, you could hear the disgust 
of the Apostle Paul just flowing over these words. It is actually reported among you that there is sexual immorality. He, he can't even believe that this is the report that he's hearing from this church. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Now that probably refers to his stepmom, the way that it's worded there. And Paul says not even the pagans do that. Not even unbelievers do that sort of thing. Now let me make a few initial observations and you'll see how this connects with this concept of church membership. First, who is Paul talking to here? Who's his audience? Look carefully. He is not talking to the immoral man. He's not talking to this man's stepmom. Paul is talking to the church. In this entire chapter, he never actually addresses directly this man in this sin. His shock is that the church itself, the local church, didn't deal with this problem. The church allowed this to continue. They allowed this gross immoral sin. Now, second, I want you to pick up on those two words, among you. Among you. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. To have an among you assumes a local identity. If there is an among you, that means that there is such a thing as a group that is not among you. There are insiders, there are outsiders. People who belong and people who don't belong. Now third, Paul's command to this church is to let him who has done this be removed from among you. There's that word again. And this wording assumes a few things. It assumes that a process existed in this church to remove the individual from that local congregation. It assumes that the congregation had enough of a collective identity that it could be discerned who is part of them and who is not part of them. And that makes sense, doesn't it? I'm not sure that we would want to identify with every person out there calling themselves Christians. I saw a post the other day about a Methodist. uh, I'm going to use the word church because that was in the post, but I'm using it lightly. A Methodist church in Florida that held a drag gospel service. Whatever that is. I don't want to be associated with that church. That is not biblical Christianity. If something like that sprung up in our area or perhaps someone in our church was living that lifestyle, we need to have methods to disassociate ourselves with them. There needs to be a clear in and out with those who can confirm, we can confirm, are living a gospel lifestyle. To allow that kind of filth to go on in the church is a danger to everyone who's living a godly lifestyle in the church. In fact, after Paul talks about the dangers of what would happen if they left this man in the congregation, how this man's sin would would then infect the rest of the body of Christ, he goes on to say this in verse 11. So pick it up right at the very end of the last paragraph here. Verse 11, he says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, that's Christian, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. This has a lot of implications for the idea of what we call church membership. We're focused, or church discipline has implications there as well. We're focused on this idea of church membership. You notice all the buzzwords that he uses here that might relate to that concept? Paul doesn't want the Corinthians to associate with people who call themselves Christians and yet live like pagans. 
And again, this implies that there is an identifiable core group of people that are associated with this local congregation. Verse 12, Paul calls this immoral man an outsider. And he contrasts that with those who are inside the church. There's an outside, there's an inside. We're not just talking about a physical building here either, are we? We're talking about a group identity. There's an outside and there's an inside. Verse 13, Paul commands them to purge the evil person from among you. There's that phrase again, among you. They had a way of identifying who was with them and who is not with them. Now, what does all this show us? The Corinthians knew who was within and who was not part of their local assembly. There should have been a clear distinction between those who are part of that local church and those who are not acting like a believer and therefore not part of that local church. Paul assumes that people can be kicked out, excluded from activities, ministries, excluded from the benefits of that local congregation. He assumes there was a process for it, and he, he gets upset that the Corinthians were not enacting this process properly. Now, where does all this lead us? Let me summarize with a principle here. The Bible clearly teaches that local churches should have systems of accountability to determine who identifies with them in good standing. The Bible clearly teaches local churches should have a system of accountability to determine who identifies with them in local standing or in good standing. We're going to come back to this principle at the very end. But first, we're going to add another one to it with two separate passages in the book of Hebrews. So keep this one in mind. We're going to add to it. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. A couple, cha couple books to the right. Hebrews chapter 10. It's a fairly familiar text for many of us, I think. But we're going to pick up in verse 23 of Hebrews chapter 10. The writer of Hebrews writes, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So verse 23, based on the gospel, our confession of hope, and based on the faithfulness of Christ, he who promised is faithful, based on these things, he says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Consider how to stir up one another. Now, I know how to stir a pot of soup. It's about as good as I am in the kitchen. I know how to maybe stir the pasta so it doesn't stick to the sides, right? But how do we stir up each other as believers? How do we stir up Christians? That word stir is only used one other time in the entire New Testament. Acts 15, 39. Paul and Barnabas, at this verse, have a sharp disagreement over whether they're going to take John Mark with them on a missionary journey. And the word stir up there is translated as sharp disagreement. Outside the Bible, that word is a very, very strong word, not very often used in a positive context. It can mean a, a violent shaking, an irritation, something that provokes you. Here, the author of Hebrews uses this very colorful word, almost a violent word, to talk about what we should be doing to one another as Christians. We stir up one another to love and good works. We irritate and provoke one another until we see good results. Isn't that annoying? 
we are called to provoke one another into sanctification. That's what we are called to do as believers, to shake each other out of our bad habits and our bad sins in our lives and and, and the bad life choices until genuine holiness occurs. Now, this, this doesn't mean that we are mean to each other or that we're rude about it. It doesn't mean anything like that. It's a forceful word, but it's used here in a positive context. We consider how to stir up one another towards love and good works. That's the object of this stirring up. The goal of this stirring up is love and good works. More love, more good works for Christ's church. The goal is to be more fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. But to get there, sometimes we need one another. We need a community of stirrers who are committed to poking and prodding and agitating and pushing and, and, and even sometimes annoying each other for the sake of spiritual discipleship and ministry. Now, what does that look like? Well, verse 25 gives two qualifiers of exactly how we stir up one another. It says, we stir up one another to love and good works, first of all, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Now, clearly that last part, as is the habit of some, that's a dig at the writer of Hebrews' audience here. The habit of some was to neglect to meet together. Before I draw some application here, I need to remind you on the authority of God's word, the Bible clearly commands us to stir up one another. This is not always pleasant business, is it? As your pastor, you're not paying me for pleasantries, though. You're paying me to help stir you up by the authority of God's word. You cannot be properly stirred up apart from regular, consistent fellowship with one another in the church. You can't be. You cannot be properly stirred up if all you do is come and attend. Come and sit and watch someone preach sing a few songs maybe, and then leave without any real interaction with other believers. Some of us have gotten into the habit of neglecting to meet together. And by the authority of God's word in Hebrews chapter 10, that's a sin. It's less than what God intends for his community of believers. It's less than what God intends for you. You will never experience the fullness of Christian life on this side of heaven without meeting together regularly as Christians. Church is more than just attending and watching. It's getting into each other's lives, provoking, stirring, allowing ourselves to be provoked and stirred sometimes. But that provoking brings forth love. It brings forth godliness. So we consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We do that by not neglecting to meet together. We can't stir up one another in a Hebrews 10 kind of way unless we're meeting together. And the second qualifier is we encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now that day is the day of the Lord, the day that Christ returns. The closer we get to that, the more encouragement we should give one another because the more urgent our task becomes. So church, perhaps I've provoked you enough this morning. Let me take a moment to encourage you. Wednesday night, I stuck around after dropping my kids off to the children's program here. And I walked around a bit and I got a glimpse of what goes on on a Wednesday night. Not that I haven't done that before, but just a nice refresher. This place was filled with children, both from our church and from outside of our church, from the community. It was filled with volunteers serving in those programs, 
filled with people eager to share Jesus Christ, to disciple our children, to share the gospel with them. Over 100 kids heard about Jesus Christ on Wednesday night. Praise God for that. After church today, second service, not first service, but after church today, we're going to clear these chairs. We don't want to do that first, church, first service because then people need somewhere to sit in the second, right? But after second service, we clear these chairs out of the way and we get ready for youth group, which meets here on Sunday nights. Dozens of teenagers gather to play games, to pray, to hear the gospel preached. Many of them shared Christ in Holland this summer. Praise God for what he's doing among our teens. Throughout the week, we have growth groups meeting for the purpose of fellowship, for the purpose of discipleship, for the purpose of stirring up one another, provoking each other to love and good works. Praise God. We have people in our church who have been doing physical handyman labor for some people in our community that need the help. Praise God. We have people who make meals for people who are in need. Praise God. On Friday night, our elders gather together to, to pray, to eat together, to worship the Lord together, to go through some training material so we can better serve you. Praise God. God is doing a good work here at Riverstone Church. Encourage one another with these things. Don't just wait for your pastors or your leaders to share this with you from the pulpit. Get out, get involved, and encourage each other with what you are seeing the Lord doing right here. Now, these things don't happen by accident. They happen because people have devoted themselves to regularly gathering at a local church community and stirring each other up, discipling one another, sharing the Lord's word with each other. A few chapters later in the book of Hebrews, the writer fleshes out what some of these relationships within the local church should look like. Skip over a couple chapters to chapter 13. We're going to pick it up in verse 17. What should these relationships within the church look like? Well, here's at least one example. The writer says in verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, this writer assumes that within this community of people dedicated to one another, there are lay people that are led by and are submitting to the authority of recognized leadership. Now, before we deal with what that command is and what exactly he's saying here, let me just briefly define what the Bible means when we talk about leaders in the New Testament. The New Testament talks about two primary kinds of leaders for a local church, elders and deacons. Elders and deacons. Elders are also called pastors. They're sometimes called overseers. Three different titles for the same office, pastor, elder, overseer, all talking about the same office within the local church. Elders are the primary leaders for local churches. Their primary task is to shepherd the flock of God that is among them through the word of God by the power of the Spirit of God. They do this by preaching and teaching that word. They do this by caring for the flock. They do this by leading the flock. Now, deacons are the servants of the local church. In fact, that's what the word deacon means. It actually means servant. This office was created in the New Testament to assist the elders in their work of ministry so that the elders could put their full attention on the work of prayer and preaching and people. Deacons are oftentimes the hands and feet of the ministry of church. So in the New Testament, we've got elders, we've got deacons, the two primary leaders of a local church. 
What the author of Hebrews is doing is he's summarizing some of that by the word leaders. I think he's especially focused on elders here because just a few verses earlier in chapter 13, he defines these leaders as those who spoke to you the word of God. And that's what elders do. They're the teachers of the church. Now here in chapter 13, verse 17, he writes, obey your leaders and submit to them. Obey and submit. Two things that, frankly, not just within a church, but within our society, we have a hard time with. I don't know how many of you bristled at those words. We don't often like them. We don't like to obey and submit. We don't always like to be led. Allow me to say a few things here about this passage. First, this verse is not commanding any kind of blind loyalty or endorsing a a blank check for leaders to do whatever they want in a church. That is not what this is saying. It's not forcing church members to robotically follow the commands whatsoever that their leaders pass down. Submit is a word that's sometimes used in military context, but the church is not a military. It's okay to ask questions of your leaders. It's okay to to respond to decisions that we make in an appropriate way. Unlike the military, the members of a church get to vote their leaders in and out. You don't like the direction your leaders are taking? Use your congregational vote as a member to say so in the next election. Now, certainly if the church leadership was leading the church in an unbiblical direction, that's the time to speak up. That's the time to disobey. Not when you just don't like the direction that things are going. Uh, We want to sometimes avoid submitting, avoid obedience when we don't really like the way that things are going. But that's not exactly what this passage is saying, is it? When I was a pastor in Michigan, there was a time when many people in our area were leaving a Methodist church and coming to our church. There was an erosion of biblical values in the Methodist church in that area. There was an increased acceptance of teachings in a similar way that I just gave the example of the one in Florida. That's the time to disobey and not submit. When a church or leadership is leading you in a way that is unbiblical. But I suspect that many people are very quick to call something unbiblical when what they really mean is uncomfortable. We are commanded to provoke and irritate each other, to stir one another up to love and good works. The Bible says in Ephesians 4 that Jesus gave shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ. Pastors are gifts to the church. And there's no return policy on us either. When you see your leaders leading in a way that makes you uncomfortable, maybe even irritating, sometimes our gut reaction is suspicion or to fight back, but this verse cautions us against that. To take a more humble approach to our disagreement. The text says, Obey, submit to church leaders because they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That verse has a very sobering effect on my soul. My responsibility as one of your pastors is to keep watch over your soul. Pastoral work is soul care ministry. All those things that your pastors do week in and week out, weddings and funerals, making visits, counseling, teaching, preaching, running meetings, casting vision, caring for members, all of those things are a spiritual work. Running a meeting is a spiritual work. Organizing a ministry is a spiritual work. Making a visit to a hospital is a spiritual work. It's all about the care of your soul. 
And the text says that one day we leaders are going to have to give an account for how we did that. We will have to stand before the God of this universe and give an account for how we led you. That's terrifying. I'm going to take one more shot here. It's very difficult for us to do that if you're not here, if we don't know you, if you're not involved. Now, I I understand, I mean, this is a big church. Not every person can be best friends with the pastor. But hopefully you know some leader that you are connected to close enough where we are able to give an account for you. And we're able to see what's going on in your life that we might connect with you and help provoke you to love and good works. And vice versa. The verse goes on to say here, let them do this, let the leaders do this work with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage for you. I found myself praying this week that some of you would make this part your life verse. The writer says, let the leaders do this with joy, not with groaning. Why? Notice he doesn't say for the sake of the leadership. He's not focused on the pastor in this verse, in this part of it at least. He says, for your sake. Let your leaders serve without groaning because of your rebellion or your lack of submission. If you cause them to groan for you in that way, it's no advantage for you and it actually damages the relationship between leader and church. God has gifted the church with pastors and leaders to shepherd, to to lead. And when we think it's our ministry to rebel against that, that's only doing us more harm. Some of you might need to look at a verse like this and inventory your own heart and determine whether your constant frustration and grumbling and, and consternation might be caused by your own rebellious attitude. Maybe it's not the leaders, but maybe the common denominator is sitting out there. It has a negative impact on your soul. The writer uses this phrase, he says, that would be no advantage to you. Some translations say it like this, it would not be profitable for you. It's the language of a commercial transaction. It's not gaining any interest. There's no spiritual profit. How do you profit from, how do you get the most profit from your leadership and ministry? Let them serve you with joy. Submit to their leadership and direction so long as it's biblical. Allow them to care for your souls. Your leadership is most profitable for you when they are not spending all their time putting out fires from those who cause us to groan. One author puts it like this. He writes, Are you characterized by thankfulness to God or are you a grumbler constantly finding fault with people and processes in the church? Do you facilitate the difficult work of your church leaders or hinder it? Are you a source of emotional refreshment or emotional fatigue? I've got to say this. There are many, many of you who embody these verses well. And we praise the Lord for you. Thank you if you embody these verses well. Some of you never realize how much of an encouragement you are to your leadership. Some of you will never realize the ministry that you have to us as your pastors and elders. Thank you. Now, when we pull these verses together from Hebrews, here's what I think we're seeing. The Bible clearly teaches believers should commit to regular fellowship at a local church, submitting to the authority and direction of that leadership. This is why, by the way, you can't just do church online. There is no accountability to the leadership there. I tell my students from Cairn University that chapel is good, but it's not a substitute for church. 
I, I often have students tell me, I don't go to church because we have chapel two to three times a week. Well, that's, that's my church, they say. No, it's not, I say. Who's your pastor? When are you doing baptism and communion, the ordinances? Is that being served there? Chapel is not church. Chapel's good. Chapel's helpful. I try to go a couple times a week. But watching Charles Stanley or John MacArthur or David Jeremiah online, those things aren't church either. Those are good. Those are helpful. But you are not submitting yourself to the direction of the leadership. They are not your pastors. So here's what we've seen today. Bring together these two principles on one slide, hopefully here. The Bible clearly teaches that local churches should have systems of accountability to determine who identifies with that church in good standing. The Bible also clearly teaches that believers should commit to regular fellowship at a local church, submitting to the authority and direction of that church leadership. Now, I only shared with you just a few verses for each of these principles. Those passages were representative of many things that we see in the New Testament. I could have added a dozen more verses to each of those principles and done a whole series on just each of those things. We could have looked at other evidence in the New Testament. There's evidence that New Testament churches kept lists of people who identified with them, kept track of conversions and disciples. There's evidence in the New Testament that the churches then sent recommendation letters with members when they went from one church to the other. There's evidence in the New Testament that people identified with a local church and they had votes on important things like church discipline, like sending missionaries. Local churches very clearly had systems of accountability to determine who identified with them in good standing. And the Bible commands believers to commit to regular fellowship and to submit themselves to the authority and direction of church leaders. When we bring these thoughts together, I would suggest to you that the best means by which we accomplish these things is what we call church membership. Church membership. Now, the Bible doesn't use that term membership. I did a couple searches this week in different translations, different versions of the Bible. Didn't find it anywhere. Didn't find it in the ESV. Couldn't find it in the New American Standard. Not in the King James Version. The word membership isn't there, but the concept clearly is. The principle behind it is here. We are to identify with and commit to a local church. We are submit to one another to stir each other up. We are to submit to the elders and leaders to be accountable. What's that called? I call it membership. So going back to the original question, what is church membership? Here's how I'm going to define it. Church membership is a public commitment to a local church for discipleship and accountability. A public commitment to a local church for discipleship and accountability. Now, I, I've got to say this. This looks different for different churches, doesn't it? Some churches say, we don't have membership. We don't do membership. And yet they clearly practice a form of it anyway. They don't use the name, but they do the thing. Some churches require different steps for membership. You have to be baptized. You, you have to go through a class. The leaders have to hear your testimony. You have to be voted in. There are different ways to do this in churches today. But each church should have some kind of system of knowing who is committed to them and who is not. Here's how we define membership in our church constitution. Let me just read to you a section from our bylaws here. The membership of this church shall be composed of individuals who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and affirm the tenets of Riverstone Church's constitution 
and who offer evidence by their confession and their conduct that they are living in accord with their affirmations and this constitution and are actively pursuing and continuing in a vital fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Any exceptions to these requirements must be approved or rejected by the elder board before membership is affirmed. Now next week, one of our elders is going to tackle the question, what is the role of church members? What should you be doing? He's going to get specific about what that looks like for us. But for now, I want to leave you by stirring you up and encouraging you with a couple of questions. According to what we looked at today in Scripture, how are you doing with your church membership? How are you doing with your commitment to a local church? Have you submitted yourself to the authority and direction of local church leaders, whether it's in this church or in another? I'm sure there are visitors here today. Have you been stirring up one another to love and good deeds? Have you been allowing yourself to be stirred up? That takes vulnerability. That takes humility. It takes time and commitment. It takes commitment to a local fellowship in order for us to do these things. These are just a few things that I hope that we chew on this morning. What does your church membership look like here at Riverstone Church? Let's take a moment and pray for one another. Lord, I thank you for the principles that we saw in the text of Scripture today. Some of them were more challenging than others. Lord, I pray that you would help the believers here to be committed to one another, to be committed to their leadership, and to be committed to you. I pray that we would do a better job provoking and stirring one another up, encouraging each other as the day draws near. And Lord, I ask for your power and your ability to help us to submit to the leaders that you've placed here. Father, give us wisdom, give us guidance as we move forward, give us vision, give us accountability. I pray that ultimately, Lord, in all these things, we are submitting to the authority of the word of God and that the spirit of God would work in this place. Let us continue to see great things happen here at Riverstone, where disciples can be making disciples, the gospel can be going out, and that you, Lord Jesus, would be glorified in everything that we do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless. Feel free to stir each other up as you leave. <laughs>